Well, thank you. I feel like I can't start without thanking you for the gift basket that we received on Sunday. That was just overwhelming. Um, we're just happy to be here. We didn't need anything, but thank you. Thank you anyway. We appreciate your generosity and, and just the spirit that you've had. So many of you that we've met, um, the spirit that you've had in taking us into your hearts. So thank you for that. Uh, a few weeks ago, we were here visiting, and we were in Colossians chapter 3, so go ahead and, and turn there if you have a copy of God's Word. Um, we looked at the first four verses, and uh, so tonight we're going to begin in verse 5. Uh, our text will be verses 5 to 11. Uh, the, the third chapter of Colossians really gets into the practical side of Paul's letter to this young church. And it's about how to live a Christ-centered life. That is, how to live our lives as Christians with Jesus at the center of everything. So, uh, if you have uh, your your Bibles and you found verse 5 of Colossians chapter 3, we're going to be reading verses 5 to 11. Paul writes, Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. But now you also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth, Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all." Fathers, we look to your word this evening. We trust your promise that though the grass withers and though the flower fades, the promises of your word are permanent, that they are eternal. And with a heart of faith, we come to Scripture to be taught, to be changed, to ultimately be transformed and made more like Jesus as we sit under it. So may your spirit do that in the hearts of your people tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. My sermon tonight is entitled, Christ and the Old Life. Christ and the Old Life. If you've talked to a lot of non-Christians, then you've probably encountered this misconception about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. They'll say something like this. Uh, People that go to church or Christians or Jesus followers just want a list of things to be told they cannot do. That if you're going to be a, a religious person or a Christian, it means you've signed up for this life where you can't do all of these things. It's just a bunch of rules that you have to live under. Now, you know as, as well as, as I know, that's not what Christianity is. If you were here for this uh, Sunday sermon, Sunday morning, uh, when our our pastor talked about uh, 
uh, holiness from the inside out, not holiness from the outside. And we know being a Christian is so much more than a list of things you can't do. That's not Christianity at all. However, if we're going to tell the truth and be honest with what Scripture says, being a Christian means there are some things that we're told not to do. Now, that's not the whole package, but it's in there. It's in there. We can't deny it. In the first four verses, if you remember, uh, Paul reminded the Colossian readers of who they were to guard them against spiritual amnesia. He wanted them to remember that, that primarily they have their identity in Jesus, that they're Christians, that they are in Christ. Now, it's possible that uh, when you listen to those first four verses, or when the Colossians heard those words, they could have thought something like this. Well, that's wonderful. <laughs> All my sins have been paid for. In, in Jesus' death, I have my own death to sin. I, I'm going to go to heaven. In, in Jesus' resurrection, I have my own resurrection promise. This is great. It's wonderful to be in Jesus. Now I can go and, about my merry way and do whatever it is I want to do. But there's more to Christianity than that. Being in Christ means we have eternal benefits, but being a Christian also means that with those eternal benefits, we have responsibilities. With those privileges, we have a responsibility that God has given us to govern how we live and how we represent Him and His kingdom. And while it is true that God saves us by His grace without any works of our own, it is by that very same grace that once we are saved, we do not remain the same kinds of people. God's grace is unmerited, but it doesn't leave us the same as it, as it has its way with us. It changes us. Now, as, as we dig into our text, I think it's important to remember that the believers in the church at Colossae would have heard this whole letter at once. Someone that, that delivered it to them, they would have just read it start to finish. So it's been a few weeks since we've been in the first four verses, but they would have seen all this connected. And I say that because of this. There is a danger in jumping into the commands of verse 5 without remembering what we've already heard in verses 1 through 4. See, Paul's message to the Colossians isn't try to be better people and put your sin to death. Try to be better people and deal with that addiction or deal with that habit or deal with this behavior. No, Paul's instruction to them does not begin with telling them what they can't do. It begins with reminding them of who they are in Jesus. And then everything after verse 4 is going to flow out of what he has reminded them of. As a Christian, we do not work toward earning an identity before God. Rather, as a Christian, it means this, that I live out of my identity before God. I don't try to deal with my sin so God accepts me. No, 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 this is so much better. God accepts me in Christ. So God tells me, because I've accepted you, because you're in my family, because you're adopted, now go deal with your sin and I will empower you to do it. We begin with our identity and then we live out of that identity. We don't live into it. So we are to take verse 5 seriously and what everything that follows after it but it's out of the resources that we're told about in verses 1 through 4. Now, this is going to be divided under two headings. Verses 5 to the beginning of verse 9 is the command that Paul gives. 
And then from the end of verse 9 to verse 11, we have the rationale for that command. So the command and then the rationale for the command. So here's the command given in verses 5 through 9. Eradicate, put to death, put off the old life ways. Eradicate the old life ways. Paul tells them to mortify, that is to put to death, their members on the earth. Now he's not talking about other church members, okay? Don't do that. Please, don't, don't do that. No, it's, it's, uh, it's rather their actions, their behaviors, their attitudes, anything sinful that goes against Jesus' priorities. Anything that belongs in the earthly realm, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of sin, the kingdom of the devil, rather than in God's kingdom, the way that Jesus runs things, those things need to be put to death. To mortify your members simply means this. It means to be killing sin. To be at war with the sin that is still inside of you. Now, we may read this and be a little confused if we've recently read chapter 2. Because in chapter 2, we learned that we are dead to our old life. Why would you need to kill something if, you're already, if it's already dead? And what Paul is doing here is this recurring pattern in the New Testament. He is alluding to this already not yet. We are dead to our sin, but we have to put our sin to death. You remember when Jesus gives his model prayer? He he, uh, he tells him to pray that the kingdom comes. But Jesus had said before that the kingdom was here. So the kingdom is here, but pray that it keeps coming. We have Jesus' imputed righteousness, but we need Jesus' help to continue to live out that righteousness. Uh, Ephesians says we are seated in heavenly places. But if you, in case you haven't looked around recently, this isn't heaven. So we're, we're given a lot of things that we haven't fully realized yet. And though we have been freed from, from sin's power and sin's penalty in Jesus, we have to go to war with it until the final day comes. You died, therefore put to death. Sin has been defeated, so keep fighting it. It's a defeated foe. Uh, commentator Douglas Moo put it this way. Christians are called to become what they already are. We have died to the power of sin, but we need to become dead to sin in the practical realities of everyday life. So this is the tension that we live in. This is the tension that you live in if you're a Christian. We are dead, so put to death. Sin is defeated, so keep fighting it. And notice, mortify, that's a strong word, isn't it? They're not to simply weaken their sin or pull off of the gas pedal when it comes to their their sinful lives and habits. No. Put it to death. Leave no survivors. It's it's a strong term. Christ has broken the power of these sins, so don't behave as if they still control you. So what exactly is it that they need to put to death? Well, Paul gives two lists of sins or or lists of vices. And we're not going to look at each one for a long time. I'm going to go through them really quickly. But they're basically in two categories, okay? The first list has to do with sensuality and desire. And the second list focuses on our speech and attitudes. 
So look down to your Bible and, and notice these different terms that show up in the first list. Fornication, this was any act of sexual immorality. Uncleanness, this term is a bit broader because it can refer to anything, whether action or thought, that is sexually immoral. Inordinate affection, this, was, uh, this is a strong desire or an intense craving, usually associated with sexual sin. Evil concupiscence, a great desire for something forbidden, often interchangeable with lust. Covetousness, this is the desire to possess something to which one is not entitled, something that you don't have a right to. And in light of the last four sins, it looks like Paul is specifically talking about a certain kind of covetousness. And and notice it's tethered to idolatry. All of these things are actually tethered to idolatry, this misplaced worship, the perverted desire to displace God with something else that's not God connects all of these, all of these sins of sensuality and desire. Now, if you're thinking, well, a lot of those words sound alike, like the definitions you read off seem very, very similar. Right. And, and that's the point. They're overlapping. Paul uses five terms, most of which are completely interchangeable, to hit the same point home over and over and over again. And what's that point? That Jesus is Lord over our sensuality and desires. That, that sexual sin, in all of its different forms, whether in action or thought, whether external or internal, needs to be put to death. So they overlap and it's on purpose. Now, now, some people, especially secular people, would say, well, you see, th- this kind of stuff is, is what turned me off, turns me off from Christianity. This makes the Bible outdated. Be- because Paul is just railing against the things in his culture that everyone hated. Now, sometimes people paint the Bible as if it's like Victorian, and they say, well, the Bible writers were just expressing their culture. Everyone in the first century was against these things. Well, that's not true at all. In the first century, sexual appetite was not something to be controlled, but rather something to be gratified. Clinton Arnold writes that, uh, that in the first century, adulterous relationships, incest, prostitution... Sexual encounters in local temples and homosexuality were all a part of everyday life in that culture. That's what's going on at Colossae. So Paul isn't just repeating what the culture is already saying. No, Paul's going against the culture. The the Bible's always been against the culture. That's not something new. Christianity has always went against the grain of the culture. Paul is not just... Uh, giving the context of the first century and repeating what everybody else is saying, Paul is saying what no one outside of Christianity is saying. That your sexual life, that the life of your sexual desires needs to be brought under control. And notice how serious Paul is about this. We, we get a hint of how serious he is in verse 6 and 7. It is because of these things, verse 6, that the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. So you're telling me that God is going to judge people based off of how they behave sexually? Yes. That's a hard pill for some to swallow. That, that God would actually judge people be, based on how they, they live sexually. That can be very offensive to people, but just 
Think about it like this. If there is an eternal, infinite, all-knowing, all-powerful God that exists, a God that you will have to meet, a God that your friends will have to meet after they die, wouldn't you want to know how he's going to judge us? Wouldn't you want to know what he says about what things are okay and what things are not okay? We can either listen to what he says or ignore it at our own peril. So, as Paul relates in verse 7, because these things bring on the wrath of God and because the Colossians used to walk in these things, they are completely inconsistent with their lives now that they're Christians. It doesn't belong anymore. There was a time and place where it was fitting for them to do these things in a very lost, sinful, pagan world because they used to be lost, sinful, pagan people. But now Paul says, that doesn't fit anymore. That's part of your old life. Put it to death. It doesn't belong in the life that you now have. The second list goes from verse 8 to the beginning of verse 9. And for if you've been a Christian for, for a long time, the second list actually may be a lot more difficult for you to, to wrap your brain around. If you've been perhaps in a Christian culture, you, ra- you were raised in church, you get the idea that there are sexual sins that bring God's wrath. But uh, the, the sins in verses 8 and 9 are a little bit different. It's not only sins of sensuality and desire that are part of the old life that need to be abandoned, but there's even sins of speech and attitude that need to be abandoned. So he tells his readers to put off these things. Anger. This is a temperament of indignation. It's exactly what it sounds like. Being angry, speaking out in anger. Wrath. This is rage or um, speaking in an obnoxious way. Malice, to be mean-spirited toward others. Blasphemy, this is anything that defames or denigrates. Now, when we think about the word blasphemy, we typically think about people blaspheming God. Now, that would be the most serious version of it, right? To, To denigrate or demean God. But in this list, it can also be applied to other people. If you denigrate others, if you speak about people in such a way that's always tearing them down instead of building them up. It's a kind, of, a kind of blasphemy. This would also include slander. Filthy communication. This is being obscene, having a foul mouth. And then number six, lying. Not being truthful, manipulating, tweaking the truth. Now again, the first list makes sense to us. We know we're supposed to put off those things, right? Right? But the second list, is that really part of my old life? Now, think about it like this. If, if someone you know that you're, you're close to had an extramarital affair, and you told them, hey, you, you can't do that, you're married, you can't have an affair, and they told you, well, having affairs is just part of my personality. Now, how would that, how would that work? Would that be an acceptable response? But if you call someone out on being angry or being wrathful or lying, they may just tell you, well, that's, that's just how I talk. That's who I am. That's a part of my personality. According to Paul, that's not it at all. 
And ultimately, according to Jesus, how you speak isn't just in the sphere of your personality. It can be in the sphere of whether or not you're living in the old life or the new life. There are attitudes and ways of speech that we need to put off because they are not fitting for a Christian. That's what this is saying. We sin in our speech and we use the cloak of personality as an excuse. As we Christians witness the coarsening of the culture around us, it may become increasingly popular to believe that gentleness and kindness are simply preferences. Or worse, we may come to believe that being gentle and kind are not just preferences, but silly preferences that we can discard. Because after all, it's 2021. We have social media. Who needs this kind of, that kind of demeanor anymore? People don't act like that anymore. But listen, the Christian can never think this way. This is not about your personality. How you talk is under the lordship of Jesus. It's part of the life that God is, is transforming within you. And there are some things we need to abandon, not just abandon, but put to death. See, Christ is not only Lord over our sensuality and over our desires, He's also Lord over our speech and attitudes. So that's what they need to put off. That's the command, now the rationale, verses 9 to 11. Why should the Colossians do this? Why should they bother putting off putting to death the old life ways. Well, if if Paul's readers or if any Christian thinks that Jesus is somehow keeping them from something good by telling them there's these things they can't do anymore, they've got it all wrong. No, 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 no. Jesus doesn't give us these rules, these guidelines to keep us from something good. No, this is, uh, we have to look to verse 9 and 11. Here's the logic, here's the rationale for the command. Seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Now this is great news. This is wonderful news. This is not just a no, or you can't, or a thou shalt not. Behind the no of killing sin is the yes of becoming like Jesus. When God gives us these things we have to put to death, these sins we have to be at war with, He's not protecting us from something that would help us or from something good or from something that would make our lives more fulfilling. He's giving us a gift, the gift of becoming who we were meant to be all along. People in union, in fellowship with God, who obey Him, who live for His glory. That's what he's giving us. See, the apostle doesn't simply tell the Colossians, don't do this stuff. No. He tells them to look at who God is changing them to be. You are becoming like Christ. You are becoming more and more and more like the image of him that created you. The image that's been lost in the fall, but is being restored for us who know Jesus. They are new people with a new nature who are being transformed back to the image of the one that created them. This is done, Paul says, in our knowledge. Through our knowing him, we become more like him. And and in becoming more like him, uh, we lay aside whatever's inconsistent with that character. We lay aside, we put to death what is inconsistent with someone who is being made more and more and more and more like the one they know, Jesus. See, putting off the old life ways, putting off 
sin, going to war against our sin, is not an end in itself. It's an invitation from Christ to live a much better, greater life. And and this life is so much more wonderful than anything we could have ever experienced being defined by our sin that look at verse 11. All other distinctions fade away. The life uh, that God is inviting you into when he tells you to put your sin to death is so much better that everything you thought was once valuable. I'm not a barbarian. I'm a Greek. I'm wealthy. I'm not a slave. Whatever distinctions you took pride in, whatever you thought was good about your life before, that all fades away because Christ is all. That's verse 11. Do you see how important that motivation in verse 11 is in light of everything as Paul said? I mean, look at all the more instruction he's given. Paul has taken two things and, and said we don't have control over them anymore. Our sensuality and desire and our speech and attitudes. Are, are there any two sets of things more important to people's autonomy than how they behave sexually and how they talk and express themselves? But Paul says, no, put that under the lordship of Jesus. Well, you say that's a lot to give up, but look at verse 11. Look at what you're getting. It is so much greater than anything a life of sin could offer you. It is so much greater. So then here's the message of our text. Those that have new life identity must lay aside old life activity. Those that have new life identity must lay aside old life activity. Now, I know it's a Wednesday, but I want to throw this out here anyway. If you're not a Christian or maybe you're on the fence thinking about becoming a Christian, I just want you to think about this. In light of what Jesus offers, is it really worth it to hold on to the sin that God hates? In verse 6, Paul said that being a sinner meant you're under God's wrath. And maybe you're still, you're not a Christian or you're watching or you're here tonight and you're still kind of thinking about verse 6. You never got past verse 6. Because you're terrified by the thought that you could be under God's wrath. Listen, if that's you, then then come and welcome to Jesus Christ. You might think, well, are you saying that I have to stop doing all these things before I become a Christian? No. You have to see them in a different light. That's repentance. You don't have to clean up your life and come to God. God will clean up your life but it's worth it to come to Christ. Now, if you are a Christian, I'm I'm trusting that most of us here tonight know Jesus. My question for you is this. Are you busy about killing sin in your life? Are you at war with the residual sin that is in you? there's not a question of whether or not we have residual sin. We all do. I do. It's there. We may as well just admit it. The question is, what are we doing about it? Are we putting off the old life ways? Are we putting our sin to death? Are your sexuality and desires under the lordship of Christ? What is it in your life that you're putting up with even though it brings you conviction because you think, well, it's really not hurting me that bad? It could be in your life of of sensuality and desire. You could be 
uh, flirting at work. Or it could be maybe not something that external. It may be something much more internal. Your thought life. And you think, well, I don't see how this sin is hurting me that bad. Listen, if you're a Christian, shouldn't we trust that God knows what's best for us and that God knows what's going to hurt us and what's not? And if God says that sexual immorality, whether external or internal, is bad for us and is going to cause damage, should we not just trust him and lay those things aside? Is it really worth it to hold on to the sin that our Savior died for? What is it in your life that you need to begin putting to death right now? I say begin putting to death because, as you know, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, we know this isn't a one-time thing. Sometimes uh, people get saved and they sometimes have this, this thought that they're not going to deal with sin anymore. And, you know, the first time that you, that you fail in temptation, you think, well, how did that happen? I'm a Christian. But we learn pretty quickly that the sin inside of us is still very real. Yes, we're redeemed. Yes, we're forgiven. Yes, we're accepted by God but we still have to go to war against our sin. What about your attitudes and speech? Are you putting those sins to death as well? Do you lash out in anger? When you open your mouth, how often does something come out that is denigrating and slanderous toward other people? You say, well, that's just something I've done a long time. Uh, uh, Maybe it is. But, But Paul says it's part of the old life. It's one of those things that doesn't belong for someone that's being changed to be more like Jesus. Are you foul mouthed? Would you be embarrassed if you found out other Christians were overhearing your conversations? Do you live a life of lies? There's an easy test for that. If you're in a particularly stressful situation, or any situation for that matter, and the idea of the truth coming out for everyone to see terrifies you and fills you with dread, you're probably a liar. That's part of the old life. That needs to be put to death. This is not what Jesus' followers are supposed to put on. We'll see in verse number 12 and onward what we do put on, but this is not it. On November 13th, 2017, Oh Chong Song was a soldier and a son of a major general in North Korea. He defected from North Korea and, after driving his car directly across the demarcation line, crashed his vehicle. Some of you may have seen the video. He crashed his vehicle jumped out and sprinted to the border while under heavy gunfire. He collapsed under the cover of a wall and was shot five times during his run, losing half of his blood. Nevertheless, South Korean doctors were able to save his life. Now, I want you to imagine just the absurdity for just a moment. If you were to meet Oh and go to his house, he had you over for dinner. He was telling you stories about North Korea. And as you're sitting there in his living room, he goes into his bedroom and comes out and he uh, changed into his his bullet-ridden North Korean uniform. And you ask him, what what are you doing? Why are you wearing that? 
And he, said, and he says, well, you know, sometimes I just get nostalgic about life in North Korea, so I like to put this uh, back on to remember uh, the good old days. And you're like, you've just been telling me about the good old days. They were terrible. Why in the world would you put that on? Listen, we, we have been freed from the kingdom of darkness. We were once in bondage to a worse, a, a much worse administration, a worse unremitting tyrant. We had less hope because we had no hope. There was nothing we could do to save ourselves. There was nowhere we could run, no border we could cross to get out of our sin. So if you've been saved, why would you put on the old uniform and live like you've never been rescued? But every time we engage in sexual sin, every time we engage in sin, whether speech or attitude, that's precisely what we're doing. We're getting out the old bullet-ridden uniform and putting it on. And God is telling us, listen, put it off. That's not who you are anymore. That's not where you live anymore. You have something much better. For you, Christ is all. And that's all that really matters. We are risen with Christ. We have a new life identity if you know Jesus. So let's put off our old life activity. Let's all stand and ask God to help us do this tonight. Father.